0: news uh, this week, but there was a a story about a Christian pastor uh, who uh, was hosting a a missionary from Czechoslovakia. And uh, uh, they went camping together, the two of them, just this Christian uh, pastor and this Czechoslovakian uh, missionary. I've never been to Czechoslovakia, uh, nor have I ever met a missionary from Czechoslovakia, but there are uh, Czechoslovakian missionaries. So anyway, they were out camping, and uh, one night while they were camping, a bear attacked uh, their campground, and uh, the, the Christian minister was able to run and get away from the bear. Uh, but the uh, Czechoslovakian missionary, unfortunately, was eaten by the bear. And so the pastor went to the uh, ranger station, and he told the ranger what happened. And the ranger said, Well, I think we've only got like two bears uh, in the park. So it's either the male bear or the female bear. I'm not sure which one. He goes, if I, if, if, I, if I could get them together, do you think you could tell which one was the one that ate your friend, your missionary friend? The pastor said, well, I, I, I could try. I don't know. I've never you know, p- picked out a bear before, but I guess I could try. So anyway, the, somehow the ranger got the two of them in close proximity. And uh, he asked the, the pastor which one of the bears uh, ate his Czechoslovakian missionary friend. And uh, the pastor said, well, it's, it's definitely the male bear. I, I can tell the difference now that I see them together. It's definitely the male bear. So they, uh, they had the male bear put to sleep, and uh, they cut him open to, to make sure that he was exactly the, the right bear that ate the Czechoslovakian uh, missionary. And uh, there was no, no sign of the missionary inside the bear. And this is why you never, never, never trust a pastor when he says, when he says the checks in the mail. Think about that at lunch. It'll come to you. Yeah, that whole cable guy was a lot funnier, wasn't it? Okay. See, the reason I tell those jokes up front is because it makes the rest of the sermon sound so much smarter and better. See, it's all perspective. It's all perspective. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, we've been going through the book of Acts, and uh, I know some of you say we've been going through the book of Acts forever. No, we haven't, just uh, this year, and, uh, but for many months, and we've learned a lot of great things, and, and I hope that we continue to learn some great things in the book of Acts. Today we're going to go through all of chapter 12, and I, I think learn some very uh, interesting and important uh, principles for our lives. Um, but let's just get started and jump right into it. Uh, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, here's what it says. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people." And so we see here that the persecution increases uh, uh, toward the Christians. Here we see Herod increasing persecution of the Christians. Now this is Herod Agrippa. Uh, He's actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one that had John the Baptist uh, head cut off. Okay, so this is not the same guy. I know you hear the word Herod, but there are actually about seven Herods in this time period in some kind of fashion and form uh, being over some group of people. So we've got to make sure we're talking about the right one. So this is the grandson of Herod the Great, and he actually brings James out. He captures James, who is one of the church leaders. He's the brother of John. Remember, James and John were the sons of thunder. Uh, John was uh, one of Jesus' very, very best friends, if not his very best friend. And his brother James, they bring him out, And they say, the scriptures specifically say, that he takes James' life with a sword. Now, tradition says and uh, practice of the time says that generally they had their heads cut off with a sword. And so this is a very barbaric way to end James' life. Uh, They probably had him kneel, uh, probably on some kind of a stone. And with a sword, they cut his head off and killed him. At the same time, he arrests Peter. Now listen, in that scripture, I want you to pick up on this. It says that, that Herod's sole motive was to appease the Jews after they enjoyed the beheading of James so much. Okay, So he has James killed. The Jews love it. Remember, Christianity had been seen at this point as kind of a sect of the Jews. It was it a was branch of Judaism that had kind of gone astray from the mainline Jews. And now we saw in the last couple of chapters uh, that now uh, Gentiles had started following the way. And we saw that the Christians were now called Christians first at Antioch. And now they were kind of developing their own, I don't know, group if you would, that were now in conflict with the old school traditional Jews. The Jews were thrilled that James had his head cut off. And they were excited even more when Peter, kind of the guy, had been rising in, you know, to be the, the guy, the main guy, had been grabbed up by Herod. Now, I want you to pick up on that because Herod was a guy who loved the polls, and he watched them. He, he would have been a great politician today because whatever the polls said, he did. If a group of people liked what he did, he did it some more. He was really a people pleaser in his heart. Now folks, the last thing we want in any kind of a leader, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the government, is somebody that does everything just to please the people. That's not a good sign for a leader, and it wasn't a good sign for Herod. When it says there that he had four squads of soldiers that were given the task of watching Peter in prison, uh, there were four squads, and they had about a six-hour shift, so there was four uh, groups of them every day, and there were four in each group. And what they usually did, and what was uh, we'll see here in the scripture later, it kind of wards itself out, Uh, there were two people that actually guarded the prisoner in his cell, and there were two people that guarded his door, his cell door. And then sometimes there'd be a guard uh, posted outside the prison, uh, but not this time. so they had these four guards, and every shift, there were two guards watching Peter in his cell. Now, generally, not always, but generally, they were actually uh, chained to the prisoner, Uh, So the prisoner uh, would have uh, one guard chained to this arm and one guard chained to this arm. Why I chose to be the prisoner and not the guard, I don't know. But anyway, uh, that's kind of how it worked. All right? And then two standing right outside his cell door. This guy was not getting away. Okay? Peter was not getting away. He put enough guards on him to make sure that he could not possibly get away. And the plan was, if you look at the scripture carefully there, that after the Passover, or for the Christian followers now, Easter... Herod would bring Peter out and do to him just what he did to James. That was the plan. If killing James really thrilled the Jews, killing Peter would be even better. And so he put him in prison, waiting for the feast to be over so that he could do that. Now you may ask at this point, wow, that's a a big deal. James, who's one of the leaders of the New Testament church already, has been killed, had been martyred. For his faith. By the way, if anybody ever questions whether these guys really believe Jesus resurrected from the dead, I think that's proof right there. Okay, at the point where James' head is laid over the rock with the sword up in the air, if he had any doubts at all, I'm sure he would have expressed them. But now Peter's in prison, who's probably the most uh, uh, significant influencer in the New Testament church. He's in prison, waiting to be executed. What does the church do? let's take a look. In verse 5, it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Notice it says there, earnest prayer, earnest prayer. The church was earnestly praying for Peter and about his imprisonment. They were earnestly praying, honestly praying, deeply praying. Uh, in, in, in modern day vernacular, it'd be, these guys were praying their guts out. I mean, they were praying consistently, they were praying round the clock, they were praying without ceasing. They were just praying, praying, praying about the situation. I think that's interesting. The church didn't decide to rise up against the Roman army. Uh, the church didn't try to strategize how to break Peter out of prison. The church didn't even try to bribe the guards or figure out a way to fix the problem. They just really seriously, seriously prayed. And by the way, I would say that according to the scripture, this was their first, their first plan. Now that doesn't always work for us, does it? See, we ha- have, happen to be the kind of people, or let me just say it like this, I happen to be the kind of person where prayer is definitely in my arsenal, but it's usually the last resort. I'll try to figure out how to uh, fix the mess, how to, how to overcome the problem. I'll try all these different ways, and then if none of them work, okay, God, I don't know what else to do, so now I'll pray. Folks, these, these people didn't do that. They said, Peter's in prison. Uh, let's just pray. Let's just ask God to do something. Let's ask God to to do a miracle here. We don't know how or what he's going to do, but let's just pray hard and see what God does. I think that's a good plan. I think it's a plan that we should take more often. I think that's a plan that we should not only put in our arsenal, but plan number one. Plan A is to pray. And I'm not sure that we should have a plan B unless God answers plan A. But let's see what happens now. Uh, so, we've got this situation that, that uh, James has been killed, Peter is the next on the chopping block, and the church is praying their guts out for this situation. Let's see what happens. In Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 11, here's what it says Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. just now, now, I think it's interesting. As you really look at the scriptures, we see that God waits until the night before he's being executed. Now we don't know exactly how long Peter has been in prison, but probably somewhere between 7 and 10 or 12 days. And God's had all that time to break him out of prison. But he waits to the last... I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but that's kind of how God works with me. He lets me get into a predicament... And then I've got my feet hanging over the ledge, and I'm leaning way out, and I feel like he's got me by the belt loop in the back. And, and just as I begin to feel the belt loop stitches break one by one, right before the last one, he pulls me back. You ever feel that way? I feel like sometimes God is doing that to increase our faith or to help us to grow or to trust him better. But I just kind of want to go, you know, if, if that's the ledge, I kind of want God to go, hey, Michael, you're getting close to the ledge. Come back. Oh, okay. But sometimes he lets me, of my own accord, lean way out before he grabs me back. It wasn't two nights before, or three nights before, or five nights before. It was the very night before Peter is to be let out and executed, and God does something miraculous. God waits. Now, when you first read this passage... You might think that the guards were asleep. But it doesn't say the guards were asleep. It says Peter was asleep. Look carefully. It doesn't say the guards were sleeping. Peter's the only one that was asleep. In fact, if the guards had fallen asleep on their one six-hour shift, they would be executed. They weren't allowed to sleep on the job. These guys were wide awake. But Peter was asleep. So so get this picture in your mind. Peter is sleeping there between the two guards. We don't know for sure if he was actually cuffed to them or not, but he had chains on himself. Peter was asleep, and the angel lights up the room, speaks to Peter audibly. Now, I don't know about you all, but if I was Peter, if the moment my chains fell off, I'd be running for the door. But the angel goes, no, no, no. Put your sandals on there, Peter. Put your your cloak on. Get dressed. I I don't care if I had a stitch of clothes on, I'd be running out the door, right? Get out of that place. He tells him, get ready, put your stuff on. And then, as the the chains fall off, he just begins to walk out. Now, so (laughs) these two guards are standing there next to Peter, either chained to him or in close proximity to him, watching him keeping watch over him. It's their job. It's their only job. And all of this happens to Peter, and he walks out of the prison. He walks past the first guards, those two. He walks past the second two guards, which are guarding his cell. He walks up to the gate that actually leads into the city out of the prison. And if you notice carefully, the angel doesn't touch it. Peter doesn't touch it. The gate just opens by itself with God's help. And Peter walks out the prison. Now that's incredible. I, I, I just, I mean, that's just incredible. The whole way that that happens and the guards don't notice a thing. They're still wide awake and they don't notice what's happening. That's why at first Peter believes he's dreaming. He's like, oh, this was a vision. If you remember back in the last two chapters, uh, Peter had very vivid uh, v- visions and dreams and God spoke to him through his visions. So I'm sure Peter's thinking, oh, I'm, I'm gonna learn something here from this vision about walking out of the prison. I wonder what God's teaching me. I wonder what I should learn from this. And he gets outside, and it says, he he kind of comes to him, he kind of wakes up. He kind of like, you know, how you get that little place between fast asleep and fully awake. He was kind of, you know, doing that and getting ready and leaving the prison. But he gets outside and he's like, wait a minute, I'm not dreaming at all. I'm wide awake. This is reality. This isn't a vision. This is the real thing. Now, folks, no other explanation can be made for this but the supernatural working of God through his messenger, this angel. By the way, just as a reminder, when we see these kind of angels, they are messengers from God. They are not our our dead loved ones coming back to help us. They're not ghosts of the dead or anything like that. These are messengers created by God to do his bidding, to do his, uh, his errand boys in a sense. And so God has sent this angel to get Peter out of prison, and he's rescued by God in this miraculous way. Now that's amazing. So remember this story. Remember what's happening here. Peter's been imprisoned, going to be executed. The church is over here praying their guts out, praying like crazy, praying like they've never prayed for anything that God would save Peter. Peter, on the last night before he's executed, is woken up by an angel he gets up, he gets dressed, the chains fall off, and he walks out of the prison. That's where we're at. Now look at what the church does, because I think this is pretty amazing. But I think if we're, I think if we're really honest, we're going to be able to see ourselves the way the church reacts. Look in Acts chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. It says, when he realized this, that it wasn't a dream, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. For many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers, Then he departed and went to another place. And of course, this is a different James, obviously. And so we see here that in this passage, the believers were amazed That God answered their prayers. Now, when I read that, I'm amazed. These people are over here praying their guts out that God will do something, praying like crazy that God will do some miracle that they can't do to save Peter's life. And when God actually does it, they're like, What? That's crazy pray like that sometimes? I mean, don't we pray for people and for things? And by the way, I, I don't want you to get the idea that God is a, a giant bubblegum machine in the sky. You just put in the quarter of the prayer and out spits the new convertible. It doesn't work like that. In fact, I've noticed that as I've grown older, uh, my prayers have changed tremendously. When I was a kid, I, I saw God a little bit like Santa Claus. You know, I would, I would have put together a little uh, want list and I would sit on God's lap and say, hey God, here are the things that I want. Boom, boom, boom. Kind of like going to Santa Claus, you know? I've noticed that as I've gotten older and as I've hopefully gotten wiser and more experienced, my prayers are less about what I want and more about God doing what he wants in the lives of others and myself. They're more around spiritual things rather than material things. And they're more asking God to bless and benefit others rather than me. But these believers were praying their guts out, but they weren't expecting anything from God. In fact, they told Rhoda she's out of her mind. which By the way, Rhoda's probably a very significant person since the scripture records her name. She's probably a significant uh, uh, believer here with this group. Instead of a, She's not like a, you know, a housemate or anything like that. So she knew who Peter was. She knew his voice, and when she goes back and tells them who it is, are like you're out of your mind. You've you lost your mind. Maybe it's his ghost. Maybe it's maybe it's his angel that has come to set him free. But when they finally believed that there was someone at the door knocking, and they went and checked it out, it was indeed Peter. And the Bible says they were amazed. Wow, God actually answered our prayers. That's incredible. Shame on us. Shame on us if we react that way. Folks, again, I'm not talking about praying for a new convertible and being surprised when he gives it. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about when you earnestly are praying your guts out for someone's life, for someone who you know is far from God, and then they begin to soften And they they begin to soften their heart towards God and they begin to acknowledge who God is and and his plan for their life and and they eventually give their lives to him. How is it possible that we are amazed when that's what we've been praying for all along? I want us to pray more in a way expecting God to answer rather than throwing up prayers and saying, well, I know God probably won't answer but I'll pray anyway because I know it's something I'm supposed to do. Let's pray, really believing that God wants to answer these prayers. In fact, when they finally realized it was Peter, if you see what he had to do to them, they got so excited, they they kind of started going crazy, and, and they were so amazed, they were kind of being loud, and Peter had to shush them. He said, shh, guys, calm down, calm down. You're getting too loud, you're going to draw a bunch of attention to this and get me killed after all, okay? Stop! And so he shushes them, they get all quiet. So now Peter's out of prison, and Herod wakes up the next morning, and he's got a predicament on his hands. Let's look and see what he does about it in verses 18 and 19. It says, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. I like what it says there. Uh, When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of the prisoner. They were both trying to figure out what happened as well as blame each other. We see there that Herod killed the soldiers... Now, imagine if you would, being one of these soldiers. You're standing there watching Peter. And, and because of God's miraculous miracle, okay, an angel enters the room, the bright light, lights up the room, you don't notice. Peter's chains fall off. You don't notice. He, he, he doesn't run for the door, but he stands there and gets dressed. You don't notice. He walks toward the cell door, you don't notice. The two guys watching the cell door, Peter walks right by him, don't notice a thing. Peter is gone the next morning, and these four guys are going, what? What'd you do with him? Did, did did you I mean, I was standing here watching him. I don't know what happened to him. I'm sure the two guys on the outside said, those two guys must have ate him because he's nowhere to be found and they did not walk out this door. They were were fighting amongst themselves because they knew what was going to happen. And it indeed happened. Herod put the soldiers to death. But not only because of their failure to do their job, but because of his own embarrassment. Because he was disappointing the Jews. Remember, His motive for this in the first place was because the Jews enjoyed seeing James be killed. And they were anxious when he got Peter. And now he has to disappoint the crowds. And for somebody who's a people pleaser, disappointing the crowd is not a good sign. In fact, it even said there at the end of that passage that Herod left town. He was so embarrassed and humiliated, he left town but let's see what happens to Herod there in verses 20 through 23. After he killed the soldiers and he leaves town, let's see what happens. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I always think of when I was a little boy going to Sunday school. Verses like that were so exciting. (laughs) He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Cool, you know. Here we see that Herod was killed in his own idolatry. So so here's the situation. The men of Tyre and Sidon had angered uh, the king for some reason. We don't know what it is. It doesn't say. The scriptures don't say. We don't even know from tradition why. Uh, But they tried to appease him because they were dependent on the king's country for food. If you remember, there was a, a, a famine at this time. After Herod came out and he put on his best robes and He did his little kingly struts. Remember, people pleaser. Sits on his throne, and he begins to speak. And the crowd responds, Man, you aren't just a man. You are a God. Listen, for a people pleaser, that's a pretty good thing to hear. In fact, that's about the best. Because I'm sure Herod was sitting there going, Right on. (laughs) Say it. Preach it. That's right. I am. Am at least your God. That's the way he thinks. Now, listen, folks, first of all, we gotta be careful. We gotta be careful if we ever think that any man is above just being a man. Little side note here. Okay? I know that that there are people in our lives that we should look up to and respect, and I hope you do that for me and for Pastor Derry, Pastor Kendall, your other leaders here. But listen, don't ever, 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 ever think that we are not just mere mortal men. And I'm sure with the kind of jokes I tell, that really has never crossed your mind. Okay? But listen, King Herod, but, and listen, I think part of this too was the people knew who Herod was. They knew that he was a people pleaser. They knew that he wanted to hear stuff like this. And, and they're kissing up to him. I mean, he's the one with the food. He's the one they're dependent on. Why wouldn't we say the things he wants to hear? Of course they did. King Herod took the glory from the people instead of really giving it to God. And what this means when it says he was eaten by worms and died, it means that he was rotten to the core. It means This guy was, he wasn't like physically eaten by worms from the inside. He didn't have like a tapeworm and die of that or anything. He, it was like his insides are just so wormy. He is so in love with himself. He is so eating it up that people are saying, you're not a man, you're a God. That stuff is just eating his insides until God just finally strikes him dead. He was struck down and killed because he believed the praise of men and that he was like a God. He idolized and and he worshiped himself and he paid the price with his life, folks. Let's just be careful. Let's just be careful that anything we do that has any real good to it, any real eternal consequence to it, anything that uh, can be done or, 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 you know, with our help, it's because of God in us. It's because of Christ in us. It's because God wants to use us or do something like that. We are all deep at our core just black-hearted sinners. We just are. Now, Christ can change that, and he does change that when he comes into our lives. But we don't ever reach his status. Oh, we strive for it. We strive to be more Christ-like. We want to be more Christ-like, but we don't ever achieve that. But we will all give an account for the sins that we've committed, and Herod did. Now, if you're reading this passage and just reading it for like a, a devotional or something, you might kind of read that that's kind of the end of the story, that's kind of the end of this historical situation, and the last two verses are kind of just to fill the Bible, make it have more pages. But there's something really important I want you to see here in these last two verses in chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. It says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. We see in this passage that the word of God increased and was multiplied. During this persecution, during the time uh, when the church is being persecuted by the world, by the government, it says the word of God increased and it was multiplied. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the Word of God, the truth of God actually grew. God's, God's truth is complete. It has been complete from the beginning of time. God's truth doesn't grow, but it grows in us. So he says the Word of God increased. It can increase in my life. The more I yield to it, the more I obey it, the more I, I give into it, the Word of God increases in me. And when I share it with somebody who doesn't know it, It's multiplied. And then they share it with somebody that doesn't know and gets multiplied more. That's how the word of God grows. We talked at the very beginning of the book of Acts. We said there's going to be three different growth reports that we see over and over and over. Three ways the church grows. It grows numerically. It grows spiritually. And it grows geographically. This is one of the growth reports about it growing spiritually. The word of God increased in the believers. And it multiplied to many unbelievers even during this time of great persecution. Folks, God's purposes continue whether the church is being persecuted or whether it's at peace with the world. God still does his thing. I have no idea what the future of our nation is, the future of our church is. I don't have any idea what I'm going to have for lunch. (laughs) But I know that God's in charge. I know that God's got it all under control And I know that he's going to achieve his purpose with me or without me. I'd certainly like to be in on the plan. Now, let's take a look before we go today at a couple of application takeaways. I want us to, what are some things in this passage that we can walk away and say, here's, you know, I'm probably, hopefully, never going to be in prison like this, and you're praying for me. But there are some things that I think we can take away from this. Here's the first thing don't be surprised when persecution increases. You know, Jesus said that we will suffer for his namesake, and he didn't mean that we'd be slightly ridiculed at work with two people whispering about us, I don't think. When Jesus says we're going to be persecuted for his namesake, we're going to experience what he experienced, I don't think he meant, you know, Michael, there's going to be a couple of people over there in the corner whispering at you, and then they're going to point and giggle. That's the kind of persecution you're going to deal with. I think he meant real persecution, like we see in other parts of the world. Let's not act at all surprised or dumbfounded If the time comes for us to experience that kind of persecution here in America, much of the world experiences it, why should we think that we are above them? Be ready. Expect what God has already said to expect. The second thing, and I want us to focus on this just for a minute, corporate prayer is perhaps the greatest weapon in spiritual warfare. We need to value and practice corporate prayer. We need to value it higher, and we need to practice it more. Why do we take prayer requests on this card? Just so people will feel better about telling us something? That doesn't do anything. Makes makes them feel better a little, I guess, but that's not what it's about. We have a team of people that pray for these, that actively pray for these things. Every week, our church is praying. I've got a couple of questions for you. Why don't you fill these out? You, you don't know any lost people? Everything's going great in your life? If that's the case, first of all, I'm glad everything's great in your life. But second of all, get out there and meet some more people. Okay? Listen, we should, we should be putting down. I, I, my neighbor, I'm trying to talk to my neighbor about Christ. I'm trying to talk to my coworker about Christ. We will pray for them by name. The last two people that I have personally led to Christ in the last month were people that this church was praying for. This church and at least two or three of the community groups were actively praying for them when I shared the gospel. Before I ever talked to them about Jesus, this church was praying for them. And when I shared the gospel, it was just like picking an apple. I mean, it was a ripe piece of fruit about to fall off. All I had to do was reach up and touch it, and it fell off. Folks, we need to pray more. We need to pray more. And by the way, if you're not on the prayer team that prays for these things all week, why not? Why not? I know we're busy. Listen, I, I'm, I'll compare calendars with just about anybody, but if we get too busy to pray, we're just too stinking busy. I want us to take prayer more seriously, folks. Prayer Is what God answered when Peter got released. We want to emphasize prayer even more in our church. We have several prayer events uh, during the year where we come together and we have corporate prayer right here. Now, listen, we're going to have a picnic this afternoon at 5 o'clock. By the way, if you're a guest, you're invited. We want everybody to come. Most of you will be there. We'll have a big turnout. We'll have a lot of food. We'll have a lot of fun. It'll be a great time. But six or eight weeks from now, we're going to have a prayer event right here in this thing, and eight people will show up. Come on, guys. Listen, I love you guys. I love hanging out with you. I'm going to love spending time with you today and having fun and eating together and fellowshipping together. I'm going to love that. But why can't we pray together? I think we've got to get more serious about this, folks. God listens to our prayers. It's not just something we do to fill up our time So, folks, if we want to get in the war, we better pray together more. And I pray that you will, is one of my prayers, is that, uh, so I'll put this on my card today, that you will listen to that and you will respond to it. And listen, if you want to be on the prayer team, all you got to do is fill in the information in the front and put prayer team under here, suggestions or comments, prayer team. And we'll add you to the prayer team. If you're on the city, which is our church's own social network, Um, you'll just be out of there. And so every week, you'll get a list of all the prayer requests. We just ask for you to pray for those. That's how easy it is. By the way, if you're not on the city, give us your email. We'll put you on the city. That's how easy that is. Just everything's so easy around here. Last thing I want you to remember from today is this. Remember that God does, uh, can and does, sometimes use the worst human circumstances to accomplish his will and purposes. This is a true story. It happened in 1874, a little uh, uh, church in Hyde County, North Carolina. By the way, this isn't a story like the pastor and the bear, okay? This is a real story, okay? There was a small group of believers that decided it was time to build a permanent church building. They were kind of like a church plant, like we were, to hold services in. The church committee picked out a perfect site for the church building. It was in the heart of town. It was on the highest spot in the village, And after much prayer, they approached the owner of the the, uh, lot, a man named Sam Sadler. They asked to purchase the land, but Mr. Sadler would not sell it at any price. Though disappointed, the congregation accepted another piece of property in town offered to them as a gift, and they began to build their building. It took over a year to construct the wooden structure that was set on rock piers. Even before it was finished, people began to worship in it. Just before they dedicated the new building on September 16th, 1876, a huge storm swept through the community. Rain fell, the wind blew, the wind was so fierce and the tide rose so high that the force of the water moved the little church building off of its rock foundation. It began to actually float down the road. It went straight down the road to a corner. It bumped into a general store, damaging it. The building took a sharp right turn and floated about two city blocks until it reached the corner of what is now Church Street. Then it moved slightly off course, took another turn to the left and crossed the Carowan Canal and eventually settled, guess where? (laughs) Exactly in the center of Samuel Sadler's property. Now Mr. Sadler was so convinced that he had seen the mighty hand of God at work, he sold his land to the church. Till this very day, you can visit the church. I love the name of it Providence United Methodist Church. And it's in Hyde County, North Carolina. Now, folks, those people, when their dream was dashed that they couldn't have this piece of property, I'm sure it was frustrating for them. I'm sure it was heartbreaking. Some of us have experienced that. It's like a kick in the gut. But you go on with life, and so they built this church a few miles down the road. And I'm sure that if you had seen any of them or talked to them while the church was floating down the street, I'm sure they were wringing their hands going, oh, what are we going to do now? Look at this situation. How are we ever going to get out of it? And yet God is doing His thing, and we're panicking, and God works it out just perfectly, doesn't He? Folks, for those of us who have given our lives to Jesus because we realized we were sinners, We realized there was no way to save ourselves. But all we had to do was put our faith and trust in a God who sent his son to die on the cross for us, to pay for our sins. And all we had to do is say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. You are not. I turn away from my sins and give my life to you. I know that you have paid for my sins, and I accept that gift. By that simple act of faith and trust, he becomes our Lord and Savior and Master. He's at work in our lives all the time. And sometimes when the situation just looks so bad, so terrible, we feel that sense of leaning out over the cliff, about to fall, God's standing right behind us, hanging onto our belt loop, waiting for just the right time to put his hand on our shoulder and draw us back and to remind us to trust him. Remind us to wait on him. Remind us to pray to him and be in relationship with him. I think these are some good principles for us to learn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. That just teaches us so many wonderful things. Father, help us to be a church of prayer. Help us to be people of prayer. Help me to be a pastor who prays. Father, if we look at this uh, prayer list and we can't think of a single person to pray for. We can't think of a single thing to pray about. God, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the people in the world around us that are in desperate need. Father, bless our prayer team who spends time every week praying for these things. God, keep bringing people to our mind who are friends of people in our church that we can pray for so that when somebody does actually share the gospel with them, they will be ripe fruit ready for for picking. Father, help us to just trust you in all of life's circumstances. When things seem out of control, we know that you are in control. Father, I can't imagine what it was like for Peter to go to sleep the night before his execution. I don't even know how he slept. But other than the fact that he probably just trusted you. God, help us to live lives like that that we just trust you. When things seem chaotic, when they seem out of control, we can just rest in the truth and put our faith in the fact that you are in control, that you are doing your thing behind the scenes. You are working things out to be done just in your order, in your time. God, help us to be people of faith like that. We just thank you, again, for your word, for your spirit, that guide and lead us. Help us now as we leave here to be different because we've been here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.